is still on us, but for eternity. And we think that's an investment worth making. Would you go ahead and step up, make a commitment, write a check, and help us get into our new home? Every single dollar makes a difference. Thank you very much. We're very excited. You're going to see some pictures over the next few weeks as you continue to come about what we're doing. And I think that you'll be able to see with me that your investment really is worth it. Well, one more time, thank you for coming. And like I was saying in the video, we're so excited. Uh, over the last few weeks, many of you, several dozen of you, have helped us rip out stuff. And you can kind of feel the excitement building, especially as you begin to see the rooms take shape. We're only a few weeks away. Here's the major hurdle for us. This is not uh, rocket science here. Um, people in this church gave, and committed to give, rather, over a 30-month period of time. And when all those totals came in, we have more than enough money to get it done. But here was our challenge. We thought it would be wise to, instead of waiting to the end of the 30 months, when everybody had already given all the money, to go ahead and try to get in sooner. That's a challenge, all right? So what we're doing is we're doing dual rents. And it's just, it's brutal on our, on, our, on our church's budget. It really affects what we can do. So we're trying to accelerate and get in. We are just, I mean, just a few tens of thousand dollars away. I mean, just a few. Well, what's funny is a few years ago, we raised $70,000 as a congregation to build wells in Africa and to um, uh, build a church in, in an orphanage in India. When you look at all we've done just over the last couple of years, that's about the amount of money that we're away from actually occupying this building. So it's a, it's a, we're, we're close, and we really could use your help. We, we'd love to have that. Uh, next Sunday, by the way, we're going to invite all of you to get up from here when you leave and go straight to our new facility and do a walkthrough. So what that'll do is it'll put you right next to the restaurants up there at the VOA area. And so you can like walk through the building in 10 minutes, and you'll be still first in line at the restaurants. We just want you to see what's going on and see where, if you've given, where your dollars are going and to see the practical difference it's making. And I'm hoping that God will open your eyes so you can see what I see every time I walk in, which is in just a few weeks, that place being filled with people who are going to hear God's word without compromise. And they're going to hear it in language that they can understand. And their kids are going to be loved by incredible volunteers. And they're going to be greeted by a hospitality team that has this motto, that the kindness of God leads people to make change. And I'm excited for that to happen. I, I almost can't contain, I, I, I'm going to sound like a wimp for a second, but I almost can't contain the tears as we're in that space working around and I have conversations with volunteers about their story, about what God's been doing in their lives. And that takes me right to what I'm going to talk with you about today. We're in this series called Me, Myself, and I Am. We're talking about the intersection of your life with God's power, your life with God's truth, your life with God's grace. And that collision that happens that leaves people forever changed. It's powerful. When you listen to the stories of the people in this room, how that they were going about their lives. And for some of them, they ended up in a place that they never thought they would be. And through a series of events, through an honest conversation by a friend, for some people, through the turning of a television channel, I did this as if it was old school TV. I guess it would really be do that. Through the turning of a television channel, through coming to a church service, opening a Bible, God broke into their lives and began to, to be a part of it in a way that had left them forever changed here on this earth and forever changed in eternity. Our heart for you as a church is that you would be always open to wherever God wants to intersect your life. 
And so today I'm going to share with you what as a pastor is one of my, now listen, this is subjective, but one of my, one of my observations about why it is people don't experience the intersection more frequently. Or when they're in the middle of the intersection, its impact isn't as deep. It doesn't, it doesn't penetrate, the, the roots don't go as deep as, the, as it could. And I'm going to tell you something without trying to, you know, just speak in hyperbole here. I think today some of you are going to get a revelation that will just change something for you. You may or may not experience an overwhelming sense of emotional release as this comes upon you, as this knowledge sinks in. I think if you'll walk away and do the few practical things I'm going to suggest, that, that sincerely, this could be life-changing for you today. I think that whenever people have an intersecting kind of experience with Jesus, it's foolish to think that we would be the same after that. I mean, when you read in the New Testament those stories of Jesus and the people that interacted with him, there's only like one or two out of the dozens that didn't leave with an immediate sense that something was radically different in their life. And those that did leave almost the same way that they came, there was some holdout, there was some barrier, there was some obstacle that kept them from pressing all the way in. So, so as a pastor, what I want for you is I want us to tear down those obstacles. I want us to, to get over the barriers. Have you, ever, have you ever had to make a decision in life? A decision that maybe you thought you didn't want to make. A decision you thought that maybe you'd never have to make. And all of a sudden, there's an opportunity in front of you. you, you you're, you're in a job. Maybe you like it. Maybe you don't. And then you get a call to go with a friend to help start a company. And all of a sudden, almost in an immediate moment, there's, there's an opportunity in front of you. And now you've got to make a decision. And you don't know the future. Or at least I don't. And I'm assuming you don't. You don't know the future, what it's actually going to be like. So you've got to make a decision now that's going to impact the future in a profound way. Jill and I have been married about 23 years. It's, it's gone pretty good, by the way. Um, we've been married 23 years. And throughout the 23 years together, we've had to make decisions in the present moment. And we didn't know exactly what the future was going to look like. One of those decisions led to us moving to Cincinnati. Uh, we had a hope and a desire, and there was some sense in which we had to step out. And it was a gut-wrenching time. We moved across country. We were in Tampa, and we moved all the way back up, up to this area, up to Cincinnati. And, and it was a gut-wrenching decision that we had to work out because we didn't know exactly how it was all going to play out. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm somewhat beating a dead horse already, but you know exactly what I'm talking about. To, to be in a position, I want to give you a tool today about bringing God into those kinds of moments. When you're facing a decision, there's an obstacle in front of you. There's an opportunity in front of you. And you don't know exactly where the road's going to go. This small, simple truth from God's word in the experience of one of the Old Testament prophets, I think, I think it opened doors for you. Uh, the story is the story of a, of a man by the name of Jeremiah. So before you turn your Bibles there in Jeremiah, I want to kind of just set you up for a second. Jeremiah is known in your Bible as the weeping prophet. It's not a good title, by the way. If, if, if God calls you to be a prophet, you want to quickly ask him not to let you be the weeping prophet. Okay? Uh, and the reason for that is, is that the weeping prophet has a lot to be upset about. There's a lot going on in his environment. Israel was experienced a time, and nobody likes to talk about this in church, but 
we're a truth-telling church around here. Israel is experiencing a time of God's judgment. Ooh, God's judgment. That's not a good thing. It's as horrible as it sounds. And what had happened was, is God had come into a special relationship with Israel and said, here's the way this is going to work. I'm going to love you before you do anything. I'm going to choose you, not based on anything you've ever done, just because I'm a God who loves and loves demands an object, and you're my object, and you're going to be the recipients of my grace. And in that in relationship of love, you're going to treat me as if I'm special, as if I'm God, and I'm going to have your heart, and you're not going to turn your eyes on all these other false gods. We're going to have a special thing, and I'm going to show you how to worship me. I'm going to give you a revelation of my character. And when you live this way, it's going to bring you love. It's going to bring you peace. It's going to bring you a joy like you've never known. And that sounded great, and they're like, yeah, God, that's exactly what we want to do. And by the time Jeremiah gets on the scene, they're not doing anything close to that. They're, they're not living in faithful walk and union with God. And so what God does when his people do that is he often will come in judgment over them. Sounds, sounds horrible, but only the most simplistic, infantile definition of love doesn't include a certain amount in which the loving parties come together in a moment of honesty and truth in an attempt to bring and restore health and wholeness. And so God's heart in bringing judgment to Israel was that they would come back to him and begin to experience the life that he had laid out for them, a life of joy and peace and faithfulness and fidelity and restored relationship and blessing. So this judgment came on them in the form of a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the ruling power in the east in the area called Babylon. And back in that day, people like to fight. Well, I guess it's still true today, right? So what he does is he travels over the Fertile Crescent, over the Arabian Desert, and he goes all the way down to Egypt, and he gives them a royal kicking. He gives them a royal kicking right there. And, and, and so Babylon is in charge of Egypt, and it's, it's awesome. Nebuchadnezzar is at the top of the totem pole. Well, on his way back home, you don't cut across the desert because you've got camels and stuff they have to drink. So they go back over the Fertile Crescent, and there's this little country in the way called Palestine. And they're riding high on the victory in Egypt. Victory, uh, victory is sweet. And so on their way, they're just kicking everybody's tail all the way home. Palestine's in the way. Israel's in the way. So on the way home from destroying Egypt, Nebuchadnezzar takes Israel. <laughs> and what he did, because he didn't want to live there, because he had a palace back home, he chooses a king, and he says, you're my, you're my vassal king, jo Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim. You're my vassal king. Now listen, here's what he says to him. You're not the real king. You're a puppet king, but I'm going to let you pretend to be king. We'll put you up in a little palace. You'll live better than everybody else. You collect taxes, and here's the deal. You give them to me. And if you do that, and you keep peace, and I'll have to come back over here and remind everybody who's really in charge, we're going to have a good working relationship. And you know what Jehoiakim did. It's either be a slave or be king. I'll be king. Awesome. Great. Good. So he does it, and he's loving life. Israel's not doing so good. Jeremiah's on the scene. He's already beginning to talk about God. People don't like what he's saying. Jeremiah is reminding people, look, this is the judgment of God. Life's not going to go good because it doesn't matter who's in charge. It matters who is your God. It doesn't matter who has the power, sits on the throne. It matters who's sitting on the throne of your life. It doesn't matter who has the biggest army. It matters which God you're serving. And he's trying to call people back to that special relationship. And here's Jehoiakim just enjoying the high life. I don't know what happens, but somewhere along the way, Jehoiakim's heart turns. And he decides, it's pretty good to be king. 
It's pretty good to be the vassal king, the puppet king. But I bet it'd be better to be a real king. I bet that's a better reality. And all this money that we send every month in tribute all the way back over to, I bet it'd be better if that just stayed right here. After all, I'm the king. Jeremiah, in his duties as being the prophet, which is where he hears from God, and then he tries to give clear words and guidance to people from God. In his duties of that, he goes to Jehoiakim and he says, listen, listen, listen. You do understand we're under God's judgment right now. Things are not going to go well until our hearts get right. It's not. It's not. This is God's love enacted in the form of judgment to give us a sense of the penalty of our own sin so that that worrisome, ugly kind of existence will turn our hearts back to God. Again, nobody likes to talk about this in church, but it happens all the time. Uh, It's like a loving parent who inflicts a little bit of discomfort or a lot of discomfort on his child to try to bring that child back into line because the wisdom itself, the truth of the point itself doesn't quite penetrate, right? So you, you, you create this environment where there's a little bit of, and it's part of that loving, the Bible says it this way, that, that, that loving parents discipline their kids. And that if you don't discipline, you don't love. So God's just kind of living out this, this heavenly father idea. So Jeremiah is telling Jehoiakim, this is the judgment of God. It's not going to go well. Don't you get any ideas about trying to go over and beat up on Nebuchadnezzar? Because if you do, it's going to go bad. How how do you think Jehoiakim heard that? (laughs) Here's how he heard that. He heard that as, Jeremiah, you stink. I don't like your words. Your truth isn't my truth. I got my truth. You got your truth. That's how he heard it. So Jehoiakim decides, I'm not going to pay tribute. Oh, and meanwhile, he puts our prophet Jeremiah in a well, in a cistern, up to his neck in mud. And the whole time Jeremiah's in the cistern, he's crying out, don't do it. (laughs) Don't go. It's not going to go well. You know? So so what happens is Jehoiakim goes ahead and he gathers an army, and and he goes up against Babylon. Now, let me say what this is like. This this would be like, um, this would be like Hamilton you know, you know, a little Hamilton just down the road. It'd be like Hamilton going against the United States. Uh, that's like the scale we're talking about. And, uh, Hamilton's scruffy, so so it might be better like it might be like like Liberty Township going against the United States. You know, they're they're soft. They're up at Liberty. They're they're a little soft. Oh wait, that's where a lot of us live. All right, so but that that's kind of what it's like. I mean, there's no chance but they're thinking hey because we have this special deal with god and god's love and his grace because of all of that we're going to be victorious and they believe this and their belief leads them to do something ridiculous and 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 the outcome is exactly what jeremiah predicted because he's a a true prophet next to moses he's the greatest prophet or maybe isaiah i mean there's just so many good ones but he's at the top you know and so so they don't do well at all nebuchadnezzar comes back he cleans house sets up another king Zedekiah. Evidently, if your name ends in Ia or Aya, you can be king in Israel at some point. So uh, Zedekiah, he becomes the new king. And Jeremiah is like, maybe I'll get a little reprieve and I can kind of do my message and people will hear the truth and receive the truth. So he starts telling Zedekiah, we're still under judgment and we need to make some changes. If we make some changes, then this whole relationship where we willingly submit to the lordship of God where we willingly follow him, when we pursue his truth, when we seek his will, when we do that, what will happen is 
that covenant relationship, that special kind of, of, of special contract will be reenacted. And rather than experiencing love through the lens of judgment, we'll experience love through the lens of blessing. Much better. Zedekiah thinks about this, and here's what he's thinking. I'm the new king. You're the prophet. You had some good stuff to say, but man, being king is nice. I love being king. A few months pass, and they begin to get rumors that Zedekiah is going to raise an army. And Jeremiah is going, wait, wait, wait. We've already been through this. Over his 50-year reign, Jeremiah, as prophet, Jeremiah sees this kind of stuff happen. Over, people just ignore his words. I mean, the truth of God is right there. And people don't step into it. So Zedekiah raises an army. And Nebuchadnezzar is not happy. At all. Marches his army right back. And this time, it is brutal. Walls come down. Houses are burned. Women and kids are carted off. It's a major turning point in your Bible story. Major. The the expulsion uh, from Israel to Babylon leaves Israel forever changed. It gets them really ready for a major event in about 500 years. An event that's finally, hopefully, going to begin to set some of this horribleness right. The event of Jesus coming. So they go to Babylon. And Jeremiah's thinking the whole time, why? Why didn't they listen? Now listen. Before I even like show you the, the, the one verse, we've covered like, you know, 22 chapters in the, in the storytelling. Obviously, I've skipped over a lot. Um, but we've covered a lot. But before I kind of like show you the point for today, you know exactly what I'm talking about before I ever read you the verse from the Bible. It's this proclivity we have, this tendency, this, this amazing ability that we have. Once our heart is set on something to convince us that that's the best thing going once we lean into something, we have this amazing ability to convince ourselves that that's exactly what we need to do. Now, as an outsider, when you see this happen, you can recognize it. You can see other people doing it. It's easy to spot. It's when, as a parent or as an aunt or an uncle or if you have little kids around, and you see like a parent begin to lean in on one of the kids, why, why did you slap Johnny? I was just playing. Now, listen, if out the outsider listening, you know he wasn't just playing, right? Little boy needs a spanking or he, need, he needs, we don't spank. The little boy needs something, right? I just said that for those of you who are going to send me an email. Of course we spank. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so just, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Cheap shots. All right. So, 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 so what, what needs to happen, but, but you know, you listen to the, like the parent, the adult engage the kid, and the kid is like all around the motivation. Why did you, he's all around the motivation. And he never, like, lands on it. And you're listening to this, you're thinking, man, that kid, he just, if he just tell the truth, it's going to go so much better for him. Or, or, or maybe a little bit more seriously. Um, you, you have a friend who's dating a guy, and this guy's no good for her. I mean, no good at all. You can see it. Yeah, the way he treats her, the way he talks to her, just his pattern of not being responsible or whatever. I mean, you've seen it. And, and, and so you, you lean in. And then as she's describing to you why she loves the guy, it's obvious her heart's already turned towards. And you're thinking, I love you, but you're an idiot. This is not going to go well. I'm not against you. I'm not trying to direct your life. But I care for you, and I'd like you to take a moment and consider. But for some reason, they can't. Or they won't. But the heart 
our hearts have this amazing ability to convince us that whatever we want is good for us. I have bought cars I don't need. I knew I didn't need them, but I got in my car, went to the car lot, looked around, and by the time I left the car lot 15 minutes later, I had worked out in my head mathematically and logically why it was that car right there will solve all my family's problems. Have you, have you seen, have, you, have you, you done that? I bought things I didn't need, but by the time I left the store, swiped the card, I have convinced myself that this will bring joy, peace, happiness, love, and unity to the Hodges house. You don't believe me? Walk in my basement, see my TV. It's way bigger, but it was going to be the gathering place of family time and unity and love. And we'd watch a show together, we'd hug each other, pray, read the Bible, and watch more TV. That I have this incredible ability to convince myself that whatever I need, whatever I want, and listen, long before I ever tell you what I'm going to do, I got it worked out in my head. And nobody can talk me out of it. Jeremiah was the prophet that came to all of us who have this ability. And by the way, we all have the ability to, once our heart turns in a direction, we all have the ability to think that's what we need. And if we don't need it, we're going to convince ourselves we need it anyway. And somehow it's going to be good for us. It's going to solve problems. And God's going to be happy. And if God loves me, he wouldn't withhold this good thing from me. And Jeremiah came to us in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. And in his dialogue with these kings about, come on, this is not the time to be raising an army. Just get your hearts right with God. Quit going after, quit trying to make yourself in charge. He comes to them and he uses this verse right here. The heart is deceitful above all things. The heart is deceitful above all, all things. Now listen, I, I'm in the, now the realm of, and to some degree, trying to like take on the role of a small p prophet here. Because I know this is not our culture. Our culture says, your heart is the thing. Whatever your heart sets before you, follow it. We have songs about it. We teach our little kids in Disney films, just follow your heart. And I guess there's a certain truth to that. As long as we define the heart correctly, and as long as we remember, we remember that there is something in us, in our hearts, that will lie to ourselves. You and me, we will lie to ourselves to get what we want. Our heart will manufacture deception and convince us that the thing we're doing isn't all so bad. The thing we want is exactly what we need. When there are people around us, some of them will speak up. Many of them will talk about you behind your back. They know deep down you don't need the thing. You need to stop doing that. It's ruining your life. And yet we're oblivious. I mean, our emotions aren't anywhere near that. Jeremiah writes hundreds of years ago, the heart is deceitful above all things. And then the next phrase is just, Ugh. and beyond cure. Now, for the Hebrew scholars in the room, the phrase and beyond cure, here's what that really means. It cannot be cured. I mean, you don't have to be like a Bible guy to get this. Jeremiah says that running in the course of all of our lives and you can't grow out of it. Unfortunately, you can't pray out of it. You can't learn enough scripture out of it. You can't be in accountability out of it. 
All of us have the tendency and the propensity and the likelihood that we will, our hearts will, want to take us to things, want to take us to places, experiences, and people that we don't need to do and have. It doesn't need to be a part of our reality. Gather resources, get toys, deceive ourselves. All of us have the ability in our hearts to do this. And then he says, and who can understand it? Like, like, why does that happen? How, how, how does it happen? I don't know all of how. Because if I could, um, then I'd be one who understood it, and this verse wouldn't be true. But I, I do know that it's a reality, and I think that by now you all agree with me that you know people, and if you were really honest, isn't it true? You yourself are one of those people who probably would be susceptible to this very truth we're talking about. That your heart, like my heart, is deceitful. And at times, it can play with you, and you will think you are so right, but you couldn't be any more wrong. That right there, friends, is one of the major reasons why people don't experience the power and the truth and the grace and the love of Jesus on the deepest levels. There is a war in, in us, within us, in our hearts. And here's God's words His proclamations, his truth. Some of them, for some of you right now, you're in situations where the Bible is black and white. God's people don't do this. And others of you, God's people do do this. And when the Bible says don't do, you're doing. And when it says do, do, you're not. And there's no debate, no pre... And yet you've worked it out in your head, and I've done it too, so I'm not throwing stones, literally. I'm not throwing stones. Where even though it's black and white, somehow I've got the special exemption. In my mind, this is temporary. Eventually, we're going to get it right. In my mind, somebody hurt me, so God kind of gives me a buy. You bought the car. You overextended on the credit. You got the bigger house than you need. One of my favorite things, we had a couple in the church who were struggling financially. And I walk into this massive house, and I'm like, Oh my God, just sell the house. They're upside down like so many people. I don't like, you know, honest mistakes. We all get there. But in talking to them, it was just kind of a, a bit comical. They're not here anymore, so we can talk about them. Uh, it was just a little, bit, a little bit comical. I said, you know, why did you ever buy such a big house? And he, with a straight face, here's what she said to me. Well, we bought a big house so that we could have missionaries come and stay with us on furlough. When they come over, and I'm like, well, do you know me? She's like, no, we don't know any missionaries. We thought we'd get the house big, and we'd set it up, and then we'd like have five or six bedrooms, and it, with a straight face, she believed she bought herself a big house to put missionaries in on summer furlough. So I said, how many missionaries have you had in the five years you've had the house? Well, we haven't really had a chance. You know, the heart is deceitful above all things. It is. And Jesus had a statement about this. And it opens the gate. Jesus said, I am the door. Right? I am the door. You walk through it. You can have, you can have a life-changing intersection with me. Jesus spoke about this very dynamic, and he said this in John chapter 8, verse 32. Politicians quote it out of context all the time. It makes me sick. I'm sick of politics already. Tell, let me tell you, if, if, there's, there's a sermon coming soon about it. It's all I'm going to say. I'm already sick of it. Politicians misquote this verse time, all the time. John 8, 32. Here's what it says. Jesus' very words. Then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The way you experience I am on a deep level with, with you and yourself and I am, the way you do that is we, ha- we, we have to on some level deal with the propensity of our hearts to deceive ourselves. 
your and my propensity for self-deception is very high. And Jesus stands in stark contrast to that reality and says there's a truth. In fact, he says, I am the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's a truth that you can embrace that will begin to set you free. Now, I want to pull this out of the clouds and not talk just about an esoteric truth. They're important. There are fundamental realities of truth. Whether you agree with them or not, they're true. Jesus is, the scripture says, I believe with my whole heart. I've given my life to it. Jesus is the Son of God, and he is the way to a relationship with the Father. Those are his words, not mine. I believe it because he said it. Fundamental, way up here truth. But let's talk about the truths like right here. How do you grab hold of Jesus' words, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free, and bring that to the very place where your heart will deceive you and convince you that you're fine doing the thing God told you not to do or not doing the thing that God has instructed you to do or buying the thing you don't need? How do you bring it into those decisions where you don't even know the future? Let me give you one question that begins to bring this intersection of Christ in your life at those moments of self-deception. Here it is. It's profound. Am I being completely honest with myself? Am I being completely honest with myself? Okay. Now, now the reason you're staying with that guy, I know what you said. I, I, I know what, what you want us to believe. But why are you really staying with him? I'm not talking about what you tell me. I'm talking about what you tell yourself. Do you have the ability to be completely honest with yourself? Am I being completely honest with myself? Long pause, dot, dot, dot. Really? About why I'm staying with him. Am I being completely honest with myself really about why I don't call my kids? Am I being completely honest with myself really about why I tell that lie? At the end of that question, there's liberty. At the end of that question, there's freedom. At the end of that question, Jesus' words, you'll know the truth about yourself, about your own heart, about your own decision-making and your own propensity for self-deception, at the end of that question, there is an open door. And yet this is terrifying. Because you have to face yourself. And that, my friends, is why we don't do it, I think. I, I, I'm not, listen, I'm not a psychologist. I try not to play one on TV, all right? I, but I think in like my, my casual observances as a pastor, the heart is deceptive. And we don't push back. We're not, I think, seeking truth at the deepest levels. Not the levels where you have to explain anything to me. I'm not even talking about it, ever explaining it. I'm talking about the, what you tell yourself. Do you ever stop to think and ask yourself, why do I want to do that so bad, really? There are a few moments in a few relationships I've had where we've penetrated the curtain. And you know, got back and saw the wizard. And outside of the lights and the booming voice, there was a little something there that was trying to be ignored, overcompensated for. I, I, I'm doing it because I feel lonely, or I'm afraid of feeling lonely. I do it because I'm scared. 
I do it because I honestly, I feel like maybe I don't measure up. And I feel like if I do this, maybe my dad will finally fill in the blank. I do this because it just feels good in the moment. And I haven't thought about the long term. Maybe I don't know why. When we listen to the deceiving heart, wherever yours is, and, and you have one, so do I, it doesn't go away. You don't pray it away. You don't read it away. It's there always, without cure. When, when we listen to the deceiving heart, we shut the door on I am who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. I'm the one who nourishes the soul. And we don't allow that truth that sets us free to set us free. And we hurt ourselves. You can see it in others. It's hard for us to see in ourselves. Here's a, here's a little challenge. What if, whatever it is that's going on in your life, a decision you have to make, a relationship you're thinking through, how you're going to respond to God, a sense of something on your heart, um, what if, instead of just like thinking about this, what if like you said out loud to yourself sometime this week, in front of a mirror maybe, or in a dark room, or in the car, if that's the place you get alone, or in the bathroom, you know, it's wherever you're alone, and you said, why am I doing this really? And then you just did what, what in, in my tradition, we just, you do a little business with God at that moment. And you ask him, you pray a very dangerous prayer like David prayed in the Old Testament. God, would you search my heart right here? And would you see if there's anything wicked in me that would cause me to lie to myself and to believe that this thing is good for me when you know it's not? God, I just want to know the truth for me right now. There's something powerful about saying it. The Bible says that the power of life and death is in our tongue. There's something powerful about just speaking the truth. You know why we lie to ourselves? Because it's the lie that gives us the energy to carry out the action. The, the lie empowers the action. If we could expose the lie, shine light on the lie, it loses its punch, it loses its power. The gas is out of the tank. It, doesn't know, it no longer propels us into the action, into the deception. And in that one sentence of Jesus, the answer for this perpetual heart problem that you have and I have disappears. You, not me, I won't know your truth. You will know the truth about him. That's good. That's liberating. But not just about him, about you. This is the part we don't want to deal with in our world. That's why we buy TVs and sit in it and just watch and watch and watch and watch. That's why we fill ourselves up with hobbies. Because we're bored. <laughs> There's a whole lot of things that we put under this umbrella because we don't take time to know us. And we might be free on this level, but we're not free in the daily reality. What if every major decision, you took 30 seconds and got alone and said out loud to yourself, God, why am I doing this really? And then you operated out of that truth. What if you got on a serious search to discover what is at the root of your perpetual challenges? You find yourself now at 30 years old going, I should have outgrown this by now. Why do I keep doing the same things over? Because the heart is deceitful. I think this will set you free. One of the whole reasons we started this church was to help people experience the truth, the power, the love, and the grace of Jesus 
Because we didn't want to send, we didn't want to see people spend eternity away from God. But our hearts for, for this community run much deeper than that. That's enough. But we wanted them to experience his life-changing power and grace and truth here. And I want that for you. You know how many times I've had somebody tell me the reason I quit going to church is because back when I was 22, somebody said something. And ever since then, I went, okay, okay, good. If you need to keep up those silly excuses, fine. But really, really, what is it? Like in you. No, you can't control all this. In you, what is your thing? So a few weeks ago, months ago now, we put these little stones out for people. Why don't you just go ahead and make a little noise and grab yours and your pen. They're around you, under your seats. We ask people to uh, write on stones. In the Bible, there's all kinds of stones of remembrance, marking special moments where God broke through. And we had them write a current concern that was going on in their life, that they would like to have God intersect them right there. They would like to have God intersect them right at that point. So people were, were they were very honest. Anonymously, they wrote on these with their Sharpies. You know, I'm struggling with, with self-image issues. I thought, man, what, what honesty. I know that right on the cusp of that honesty, there's a breakthrough. There's a breakthrough. And they wrote that, and, and then as they exited service, they put them in a, in a container, and we made a commitment that we would take these stones that represent the cares and concerns of this community, of, of us, and that as we build our new facility, they would they'd become a part of the foundation, the, the inner working, literally a part of the, the mortar holding us together, that we're in this all together, that, that there are needs. And as we would read through these stones over the next, over the, the couple weeks after people did it, uh, we, we, we discovered a level of disclosure and honesty that because people didn't need to tell us what was you know, their issues attached to their name. They just disclosed. There was a level of honesty there, and it, it, it gave me significant hope, but not just for those who wrote the stuff. I knew that each one of those represented, you know, if, if, if one person struggling with images, there, there's 35, 40 girls who've never darkened the doors of our church. There, there's 35, 40 young men who've never darkened the doors of our church that are struggling with that as well. It doesn't just represent you. The intersection of that truth, that, that very truth, that'll change, that'll change a lot of people. You, truth is, is, is contagious like a lie is. It moves slower. But it's, it's contagious. And what we wanted to do today was give you a chance to invite God to intersect your life somewhere in a moment of honesty. And this is for you. It's not for your neighbor. You don't fill it out knowing that your husband's looking over your shoulder or whatever. You write down what you would like God to do, where you'd like him to intersect your life. You take that pen at some point over, over the next five, ten minutes of worship, and then as you exit the building today, there are going to be some bins right outside the door, and you're going to drop it in. You turn it upside down, drop it in. And as we're constructing our home and we're putting walls, these stones will be placed throughout our facility in, in, inside of walls, sealed up. And they, they, are, they are the bricks and mortar that give us our common experience together, reminding us why Jesus is so important, why our sacrifice is worth it, why you can't give up. Well, you cannot continue to lie to yourself. We, we can't make everybody tell the truth to themselves, but you can. You, you can start.
telling the truth to yourself. And that can begin to change things. I'm telling you, man, listen. Listen to me, man. You have power here. You're not powerless. And you can begin to tell the truth. And that ripple effect in your family will be profound. You deal with those issues, and you won't pass them on to your kids. Or if they do go at all, they'll be significantly weakened. That, that ter- it will be, it'll be weakened in its, in its effect on your kids and your grandkids. Where does God need to intersect? Where does I am need to come into the middle of your life? Whatever words it takes, right in here, both sides, do it. Grab a stone, walk around, collect eight or nine more, do whatever. And as an act of faith, put this in and say, God, your love never fails. I don't know what the solution is, but I know the first step is me being honest with myself. And I'm going to take you at your word that your truth will set me free. Grab out your connect card and let's take a few other steps together as a congregation. You want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and begin a relationship with this God who loves us so deeply. And scripture says if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. You'll be in right relationship with God. Around here, the way we do that is you simply check next step A, and we send you an email and some stuff through the mail that lets you get acquainted with what a relationship with God can look like for you. We don't tell you what to do. We just want to show you a few steps that you can take. If you'd like to do that, you can check the box. We'll be in touch with you this week. If you'd like to get baptized and go public and say, look, part of my story is Jesus has intersected my life, and I want people to know it's the truth of who I am. It's the truth of who I'm becoming. Go ahead and check that box, and uh, we'll get you baptized. It's a big, big celebration around here. All right, next step, C. little drilling down here. You ready? I've been blaming others, but the truth is there's responsibility for me to accept so I may begin to walk in freedom. Check it. Commit to it. Pray it. Ask God for it. Show me your way, God. Search my heart. Truth sets me free. I'm not letting go till I get through. Next step, D. Listen, it's just where we are. We're bold about this. I know some of you are wounded here, but we're bold because it's where we are. I'm going to sincerely pray over the next two weeks about my financial gift to help us occupy our home. I know some of you haven't prayed. You know how I know that? Because some of you haven't given. Some of you haven't given because you're broke. Got it. No problem, no harm, no foul. Some of you just haven't asked God what to give. Would you just pray about that? That's all you got to do. That's all I'm asking. All right, next step B. I'm coming to see our new home next Sunday, 1130. I need to get a little count and kind of have an idea of how much to uh, prepare for, all right? Let's pray real quick, and then let's worship our awesome God. Lord Jesus, you're amazing. Thank you for being the door. Thank you for bringing truth, the truth that sets us free ultimately. But thank you, Lord, for reaching all the way down where our feet hit the pavement and bringing truth right there. God, would you help us to pray with David? Search my heart, O oh God. See if there be any wicked way in me. And would you help us elevate the truth in our own hearts to counter that deception? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.